Well, Philippians chapter 4 this morning, uh, counting today, we have just two sermons remaining in this series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, our plan for the next expository series will be to go through the book of Acts. And that's a long book, 28 chapters. And so right now we have a plan uh, for chapters 1 through 15 that will take us through uh, the end of the year um, as things are right now. Uh, There probably will be some adjustments to that as we go along. Uh, But I hope that the truth that we've learned from Philippians, um, the wisdom from God in this letter has encouraged you. I hope it's challenged you. I hope it's changed us all that we could better display the glory of God more and more as we're changed into the image of Christ. And the passage for our consideration today holds one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. And you're thinking, this isn't John 3.16. I think this passage probably holds its own right next to John 3.16. And it's Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, You've likely have read that on a bumper sticker or have seen it on a shirt or have written it on a note and stuck it to your bathroom mirror, or I don't know how that works, but um, you likely are familiar with this passage. Even if you don't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you've not been a Christian for very long, you have likely have heard this passage quoted. So the challenge before us today is to honestly hear and embrace the truth from God's Word in regards to this passage without the bias or baggage of what we want this passage to mean for us. I heard a funny illustration once in a, in a class where um, the analogy was, what if you have two Christian boxers and they're both walking into the boxing ring and they've got their, I don't know what you call it, it's not a boxing robe, but you know what I mean, right? The, the robe that's got their, their name and all that. And both of them on that robe have Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. And both of them have named and claimed, quote unquote, this passage as they walk into the ring. Both are Christians. Which one of them can do all things? Which one of them is going to win, right? Um, And so this passage is often used and abused and at the very least misunderstood. Um, What truths do we find in this passage? Well, there's two, I think, overarching truths for us this morning. The first is the importance of Christian community and partnership. Um, Verses uh, 10 through the end of the chapter really are highlighting and bringing to light the enormous importance for the advance of the gospel the importance of the Christian community and Christian partnership to advance the gospel. And so this passage, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 13, that's so popular, is, is kind of uh, built into the soil of this, over, of this bigger idea of Christian partnership and community. And then the second truth for us this morning is that of Christian contentment. So these are small, easy topics, right? None of us need to hear this, right? Uh, So that's what we have for us this morning. The first one, Christian partnership is essential for gospel ministry. Uh, Verses 10 through 20, like I said, really are emphasizing the involvement and partnership of the Christians in Philippi with Paul. And um, the Christians in Philippi had concern for Paul. You can read that, uh, where he is rejoicing in the Lord because of their concern for him. And it sounds like there was a period of time where they weren't able to demonstrate their concern. They they didn't have the ability, but then they did eventually find an ability to do that. They sent him uh, a financial gift, and Paul is thankful for their kindness toward him to to share in his trouble. Verse 14 is described that way, uh, to share in his trouble. And we know that he sent, uh, that the Christians in Philippi sent a financial gift with Epaphroditus uh, to Paul to help him in his ministry there. And so uh, we understand that this ministry towards Paul from the Philippians was not just a single one-time event. This was something that was ongoing, and for that, he was very grateful for them. They had a history of partnering with him through various mission efforts 
Uh, He says in verse 16, I know that's beyond our passage this morning, but he says in verse 16 that even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. So Paul is full of gratefulness. In fact, he's so full of gratefulness that he writes in verse 10, he rejoiced in the Lord greatly because of their concern, because of their partnership in, in gospel ministry. Now, just think about that. How can he honestly say he rejoiced greatly in anything? A man is in prison. How could he find joy in anything? I mean, he looks around. He doesn't have his freedom. It sound, I mean, it really, in all intents and purposes, it, it, from the outside observer, it appears like he is drastically limited in his ability to advance the gospel. Now, we know, we know that's not true because of what he wrote in chapter 1, that God has actually turned these events to advance the gospel in unique, special ways. But how in the world could this man write how he rejoiced greatly in anything? And this teaches us something about the enormous power of Christian partnership. Christian community, this worshiping of God together, serving God together with other Christians, is designed by God as a source of great joy for Christians, for us, for his children. And he finds great encouragement and joy from the Christians in Philippi. So let's take this to heart. In our modern age, where we have the elevation of what quote-unquote is called the psychological self, which is this idea of do what you want, what are your dreams, what do you desire, now pursue that. That's the, the elevation of the psychological self so that really an individual's preferences and ideals and pursuits are almost given God-like status. How in the world then, what, what can we learn then about the role of Christian community in regards to our joy in the Lord? Sadly, our modern mind can often think of community as a threat to our joy because it means we have to deny ourselves, it's inconvenient, it requires time, it requires effort, it requires traveling and going somewhere and spending time with other people and giving up what we would use for ourselves, on and on it goes. And we can start to look at it as, ah, it's just not worth it. And it costs too much. They want me to do that? How dare they? They don't realize that I have to give up this and, and do that and go here and go there and put up with him or put up with her or, or listen to them again? We have all these reasons that come to mind. That's our modern dilemma. But yet what we find here in Scripture is that for Paul sitting in prison, and you say, well, that's why he had that perspective. He was in prison alone, right? If I was in prison alone for a few months, maybe I would share Paul's opinion. Friends, it's not that. This is, this is God's truth for all of, our, all of us as Christians, that God intends for Christian community the joy of serving together, of worshiping together, to be a source of great joy. So the question then is, if that's not true for you, why not? You might have a list of reasons, all that's happened or what you've experienced. Or, and I'm not discounting or diminishing that. But the scriptures say that you can actually rejoice in the Lord greatly even if you're in prison. That's how God intends for our partnership to be. But notice that Paul's joy is in the Lord. Uh, it's in the Lord. It's not actually in those Christians, but his joy is in the Lord. And I think this is a very important distinction because really any one of us at any given time Frankly, let's be honest, we are rarely at our best, right? Right. I mean, even this morning as we gather together to worship, we're probably really not all at our best. And so we've got to put up with each other, right, when we're not at our best. Some of you just listen to somebody sing that you wish they didn't sing that loud, right? I mean, I'm just, there's just these things that just kind of boil in and irritate us and work against finding joy in the Christian community that God has given us, even silly things like that. 
But Paul's joy was in the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that, he, that Paul was diminishing the care and concern that these Christians gave him through their financial gift, through their commitment to him, through the hardships of being imprisoned and the shame that they would be carrying on themselves as being a partner with him who was in that predicament. It doesn't mean he diminishes that or looks past that, but he ultimately anchors his joy in the Lord. He sees God's hand of provision in these Christians to him, and he's thankful for that. He writes that, but it's ultimately his joy is in the Lord. And I think that's maybe where we stumble, is that we're trying to find joy in each other, falling short of having a focus on in the Lord. That really anything that we share with one another in fellowship and community and service together, it's rooted in our relationship in the Lord. And so as we face these frustrations and irritations and disappointments from one another because we're not Jesus, we understand that what we share together in the Lord is a source of joy. And it's an enduring source of joy, even if we were in prison. And so I'd like to challenge us all to take this simple phrase to heart, rejoice in the Lord greatly. Rejoice in the Lord greatly. I wonder if that seems foreign to us, odd to us, kind of abstract. Like you, you know how to rejoice in a, in a delicious steak dinner or if that's not your, your jam, in a, in a wonderful cob salad. I don't understand that. But you could rejoice, you fill in the blank, okay? We say, I get that, I can rejoice in that. Rejoice in the Lord? How do these words strike you? Do they seem far-fetched and fairy-tale-like? Test yourself. Over the past three months, four months, how often did you find joy in the Lord? What I mean is that circumstances are defying joy, are threatening joy, are sabotaging joy, but there's this resilience and this never-ending source of joy that's just so curious and strange and it defies all the odds. Do you find joy in the Lord? Sometimes I think what we do is we are tirelessly running around in life from one effort or pursuit of, of another, from one distraction to another in our pursuit of joy in life, and we kind of look right past the Lord. We might say, God, why aren't you giving me joy? Why aren't you giving me that which would give me joy? And yet God in his mercy is saying, I'm right here and I am the endless source of joy. Rejoice in me. Well, ultimate joy is found in the Lord. We see from Paul here. It's encouraged and strengthened. He's reminded of it by the Philippians' involvement with him in gospel ministry. And this leads him then to make a couple of qualifying comments that, that then lead into that remarkable statement of how he can do all things through, through him who strengthens me. And this leads us to contentment. And maybe we call it this, Christian contentment, or we could call it this, true contentment. In verse 11, Paul clarifies that he doesn't look at his relationship with these Christians from a standpoint of need. And I think what's happening here is a classic Greek Stoic mindset that was prevalent in the day where friendship was considered false if it was based upon need, saying that that's, that's a false foundation for friendship. The purest form of friendship, the, the, the Greek philosophers would say, are based upon where there is no need. It's just simply you have friendship that endures even without that sense of need. It can't be transactional. And I think there's some value in that. And Paul wants to qualify when he talks to them about how he rejoiced in the Lord because of them. Verse 11, it's not that I'm speaking of being in need, 
Meaning that he's thankful for them not because, only because of them providing for, the, for his need. He's, he's rejoicing in the Lord. He says in verse 11, not that I'm in this sense of need, because what? I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He has learned to be content in whatever situation he finds himself. Wow. Right? Put that in a book and sell a million copies, right? Well, it's already in a book, right? Do you want that? I do. Have you fallen short of that last week? Sunday, first day of the week, right? So last week, did you fall short of that? I did. Right? All I want to do is, realize, is for us to recognize that we really need this. We live in an age where we live like kings compared to the kings of, of days past, right? I mean, Solomon is talked about as being extraordinary in his wealth and abundance, and I think we're, we're not far off from that. Now, I don't have gold, gold silverware at home, right? And Solomon did, so he ones up us on that. But in the sense of comfort and ease and transportation and on and on it goes, I mean, I don't think Solomon had a hot water heater. We do. I mean... We're living pretty well, right? And yet we find ourselves very discontent, don't we? Now, this um, term that Paul uses for contentment, it's something that was revered and discussed by the Greek Stoics. Uh, I think if, if my study is right that this word here is used only here, but it's used elsewhere in Greek literature, and it means the idea of being self-sufficient. It means being... Uh, the sense of self-sufficiency, meaning you're not needing something else to bring you to this state of contentment. You are content. You're self-sufficient. You're satiated. And as Christians, we might be thinking, well, that sounds like danger. Like, that sounds like fleshly. sounds like, where's God coming to that, get that picture? Now, he brings it into a Christian context in verse 13. It's very clear, right? He's borrowing this Greek term, contentment, but in verse 13... He brings it into a Christian context. He's not talking about just self-effort, that he can somehow bring himself to this place of achieving this kind of Zen state. Okay? But he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the him there is Jesus. It's a relationship with God. So he clearly anchors his sense of contentment in the strength that only God provides. Now, that's the Christian context of how he's borrowing this word and bringing it into. Now, in contrast, the Stoic of his, of, his, of his present day would have pursued contentment through detachment from this world, detachment from things, detachment from people and relationships, right? Which is where we understand the idea of Stoic, right? I'm going to just, I'm Stoic. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to laugh too much either way. I am, and we, we understand that. And Paul is giving a different way forward. It's not that way. It's not through that kind of self-disciplined effort. It's through Christ, through him who strengthens me. Now, we're probably a little curious about, okay, what does that mean, right? It sounds really religious, but how do I put that in my tool belt for this week? I, I hope we'll get there. Christianity approaches contentment differently because we have something that the world doesn't. We have Jesus. And friends, that should set us apart. Not theoretically, but actually. Which means as we interact with our friends and neighbors, 
We live in the same world where there's a lot of bad things happening, a lot of bad news going on. Headlines are worrisome and troublesome and fear. They really can be fearful. Yet Christians are these odd group of people that somehow navigate those tumultuous waters in, in, in some bizarrely calm way. There's contentment there. So what's being described here, by the way, we need to qualify verse 13, I can do all things. The all things that Paul mentions has to be qualified by the context of what it's written in. Otherwise, honestly, I know this is going to sound absurd, otherwise, logically, you could stand on the top of a mountain and turn to your friends and say, I'm jumping down. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I hope your friends grabs you and holds you back from doing that. Right? Otherwise, all things could mean all things. And you say, well, don't you believe the Bible? Yes, but we need to make sure that it, we understand what the Bible means with the original authorial intent, which is anchored in the context of what Paul writes. What are the all things here? It's referring to his contentment with a little or with a lot. It's, it's finding how to live with contentment, self-sufficiency, being satiated, whether you have plenty or poverty. Now, those are general categories of the extremes that we might find in life. A little or a lot. Plenty or poverty. Listen, Paul is saying, I can do it all. I can live in all of that through him who strengthens me. That's the all things. Now, he says in this passage that he has learned something. Do you see that? Verse 11, I have learned. In verse 12, I have learned the secret. That's repeated, and that's on purpose. So what's being described here by Paul isn't it's something that we must learn, but it's not a physical skill set, meaning this. It's not like you can learn contentment like you could learn a golf swing or like learning to ride a bike. It's a mindset. It's something he's learned through life. And uh, you might be surprised that you're hearing a preacher say this, but I can't teach you contentment. This sermon will not teach you contentment. You say, well, you don't believe in the, in the importance of preaching? That's not what I said. I'm just saying that I can't teach it to you. This sermon won't teach it to you. The, the application is, now go out and be content. That's, I, I can't do that. But it is something that we all must learn. And I hope that this sermon, I can teach you about contentment from the Bible. But we're all going to have to learn contentment just like Paul learned contentment. And he did not learn contentment in a day or in a sermon. But Paul learned contentment throughout a lifetime of ups and downs. And those ups and downs were, were dramatic. I mean, he had, he had encounters with the resurrected Jesus. He talks about spiritual things that he experienced that really defy description. And he had low lows. He was dragged out of a city and stoned. He was beaten. He was arrested. He was imprisoned. And this didn't happen just like once. Like this followed him around. He was shipwrecked. And he has learned in all of those circumstances, now as he writes this, to be content because of the strength that he finds from God in Christ. And by the way, that's how God will teach us all contentment. And all of you just had this sense of dread pierced through you, right? Am I going to be shipwrecked today? Probably not. Friends, I hope this helps us realize that God never wastes our suffering. 
kind of a side application, but God never wastes our suffering. And we try to find one good reason for why we go through suffering. Maybe God has 10,000 reasons. One of them may be to teach us contentment. God teaches us all contentment in the same way. Now, contrary to the cliche that experience is the best teacher, right? Contentment is not learned merely by experience in the circumstances of life, but by being in Christ in every situation in life. And this is anchored with the idea of him starting this section by saying, I rejoiced in the Lord, in the Lord. He's in prison. And now he's talking about, I can do all things, and I'm going to use the same phrase, in the Lord. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So he rejoices in the Lord. He's finding contentment, whether in a little or a lot, whether in plenty or poverty, and he summarizes it saying, I can do all of those things in the Lord. And so the difference between, okay, I just I got to kind of go through a bunch of ups and downs and tough breaks and learn, learn through the school of hard knocks. Well, that means that everybody in our world then would find the secret of contentment, right? But no, the secret of contentment is found in Christ. So, the contentment Paul writes about, by the way, requires great strength. Verse 13, you see that? I can only do it through him who, what, strengthens me. So this teaches us that the mindset behind contentment requires great strength, strength that is beyond you and me. It requires an attitude that is going to require great focus and the ability to make sure that Christ is the greatest priority in your life. So um, this helps us understand then why Paul wrote earlier in chapter 2. In fact, just turn back there or, or, or page down in, in, in your electronic version, but back to chapter 2. He's writing to them in verse 2, complete my joy, how? By being of the same mind. He's writing about mindset all through chapter 2, about how they should be thinking and their behavior anchored in how they think about one another, a mindset. And he drives it home by saying in verse, um, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Again, a mindset. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, certainly that includes behaviors, but it's driven by a mindset. How do we know that? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. So Paul is continually going after the mind of these Christians, and he's talking to them now about how the mindset that they need for contentment is strengthened through Christ. And this then is what I, what I hope us we understand. There are things the hardest things we do in life are often mentally the toughest. Um, I, I remember training for a marathon and a friend telling me, I, I hadn't run one, it was just like big unknown monster, I remember a friend telling me, Sean, it's not an issue of can you do it, it's an issue of will you. It's not an issue of can you finish it, the issue is going to be do you want, to, will you want to. And it's true, right? I mean, Tens of hundreds of thousands of people have run marathons in the world, right? I mean, if you go back to the beginning one, probably a lot more than that. It can be done. I know there could be you know, medical conditions and physical limits, and just, I understand that. But, okay, we understand the analogy. It's not an issue of can the human body do that. Yes, it can. What's the issue? Is will you make your body do that? I remember reading uh, in, in a book about, uh, from Marcus Luttrell, lone survivor. In that book, he described the training that he underwent to become a Navy SEAL. And he describes seeing some folks in that group that were just these guys were muscled and athletic and just these hulks and they were strong and it was almost kind of like somewhat intimidating, these specimens of humanity. And he commented how some of them were the first ones to ring the bell to, to, to give up 
He said he had to focus his mind not on how many days of this training he had left, but sometimes it was on the next rep that was required of him, the next 15 seconds that was required. And he just went through it that, and he was talking about a mental discipline that was required to get through it. Friends, tying us all back into Philippians about contentment, where Paul, through this letter, has been going after the minds of his readers. Now he's engaging it into the idea of contentment and harnessing it into how contentment is something, the secret of it is found and anchored in Christ. How you think about Jesus. How you perceive him in your life. The role that he has in your day-to-day living. This is where he ties it all back. The strength that all of us lack in regards to contentment can be found in Christ and him alone. What does that mean? That sounds very religious, but it's kind of abstract. Right? It means this. It means centering your life on Christ. And by the way, the answers I'm giving to that question are derived from Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, I'm going to focus my whole life on advancing the gospel, on proclaiming Christ. He says, whether I live or whether I die, it's all about Jesus. Now that's a mindset that centers one's life on Christ. It means ordering our life and our deepest longings and our greatest joys in Christ. That's why a guy in prison, who, by the way, when you read in chapter 1, there were people that were, that were just being jerks, right? They were going out and preaching. Paul can't. They were kind of doing a na 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 to Paul. And, and Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm just glad that Christ has proclaimed how do you, where do you find that? I mean, what's your response when somebody, while you're down, looks at you and, I mean, really, just imagine that. I mean, some of you don't even have to imagine it. You're like remembering a story, and I'm sorry that I've just caused you mental trauma and remembering that, but, right, in some time in life, and basically the person looks at you and kind of na 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 kicks you while you're down. What, what response do you find comes so easily? I'm just glad that God's being glorified right now. It's usually not our natural response. This is powerful. This mindset, Paul has demonstrated this throughout the letter. He is looking not to the things in life for contentment. How could he? He's in prison. Instead, he is finding his greatest joy, his deepest longings. He's ordering his life, whether he lives or dies, around Christ. And now we're all thinking, that sounds really fanatical and radical. Like, we're going to have to all be Jesus freaks. So here's where the rub is. Maybe what we think is Christianity is just kind of a modernized, American culturized, whitewashed idea where we try to fit Jesus into our busyness. Paul wasn't doing that. Paul centered his life on Christ. This is the challenge for us today. It's a challenge for me. Maybe contentment eludes us because the source of contentment is Christ, but we want to look around him. We're like, oh, but life is so much more than Jesus. It's got so many more things to offer to us than Christ and the advancement of his gospel and the glory of his name and the coming of his kingdom and the accomplishment of his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We realize that maybe our lives are going to have to make some drastic changes and it might not necessarily be in a lot of behavior, but it will require a drastic change in our mindset. By the way, this is the centrale is not, is not unique to Paul and Philippians. This, this truth, right? I mean, what are, what are you trying to find contentment in? Or have you tried to find contentment and did it just crumbled around you because the relationship failed or went through hard times or, or the circumstance changed or the possession 
broke or got stolen or, as Jesus would say, moth and rust corrupts it. Moths, things that fly. But this is why the writer of Hebrews could warn his readers away from living their life in pursuit of materialism, of secular materialism, of just the rampant pursuit of wealth with this assurance. He went after that danger with this truth. He says in Hebrews 13.5, Keep your life free from love of money. We need to hear this. And be content with what you have. For he has said, he quotes Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now here's what happens. Our modern years in an affluent American society hear those phrases and we're like, yeah, okay. Because Jesus is with me. <laughs> the problem isn't with Jesus. The problem is with, with our hearts, with our hard-headedness. So in other words, Christian contentment says this. It's all the strength that we get from God. How so? Because Christian contentment, the secret of that preoccupation with Christ and God and his world and his work and his gospel means this, that we ultimately are saying, God, you're enough. You're enough. Being loved by God and loving God is enough for a contented life. Because you can do that anywhere. In prison. You can do that in a funeral home at a graveside. God's enough. We can experience self-sufficiency, not in ourselves, but in the strength that we find from Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. God is with me and he goes before me. Even in this difficult circumstance. Even in this failed dream. Even in this frustration and disappointment. Contentment is found by ordering our life around honoring God, not ordering our life around the acclaim of others. Contentment is found, the strength that he gives us is this mindset of what? It's thinking and believing that God's love toward you, not the love of others, but God's love toward you is the most fundamental foundation for your happiness and satisfaction in life. I remember in one circumstance, this was six years ago or so, I remember a pastor friend, we were, we were sharing some stories and I was sharing a story about a deep, um, disappointment, frustration. I remember him telling me, man, I mean, and this guy, he, he talked this way. He's like, dude, is Jesus enough? And I, I, I almost wanted to hit the guy. And you could say, well, maybe he didn't pick his right time. It wasn't an issue of that. All right, he had listened, we had talked, and he just kind of was quiet. He just came out with a, dude, is Jesus enough? That's what Philippians is doing to us right now. Dude, is Jesus enough? That's the secret. The strength of contentment is found in Christ. Now, of course, all of this assumes that you know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you don't know the Jesus as Lord and Savior, none of this is going to make sense and none of this is going to be true for you. You can't anchor your life in Christ if, if he's not your Savior, if you've not... Abandon all efforts of self-salvation, trying to find contentment through your own efforts, satisfaction through your own works, enjoying delight and fulfillment and purpose in life through your own achievements, through your own doing, right? If, you're not, if you haven't abandoned self-salvation and known Jesus as your Savior, none of this will elude you. 
But if you do know Christ as Savior, then He can be that strength to bring you this contentment. Now, some pushback, right? Or maybe you're not a Christian, you're kind of just objecting to this, this whole idea about really Jesus, contentment. Listen, I just want one guy to pay attention to me, you might think. Or I just want that girl to, to notice that I exist. Or I just want my boss to give me that promotion. Then I'll be content. Or you fill in the blank, right? The issue is not that it's been said like this or explained to me this way. The issue is not a matter that you can't trust in Christ. The issue is a matter of that you refuse to distrust yourself and your assessment of what you think will bring you contentment. Anybody who says, I can't trust God, I can't trust this idea of the secret of contentment is Jesus and recklessly abandoning my life and ordering it around him and his glory and his kingdom and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I, I don't, if you're, you're saying, I just can't trust that. When you say that faith like that's just beyond me, I'm not convinced. What's really happening is you're actually refusing to see the fact that in that statement, you are living a life of faith. Faith in yourself. Faith in how you think about what's going to bring you contentment. You get this? I know we're kind of getting into like philosophical thought here, but I think this is important because Paul's going after our minds. When you say, I'm not going to trust in anything, I'm not going to trust God, I'm not going to trust some preacher who tells me who I have to give my life to or some book written how long ago by some dude I've never met in a world that I don't live in to tell me where the secret of contentment is, what you're saying is, I'm not going to, when you say, I'm not going to trust relationships, I'm not going to trust anything from now on because it's just going to always change or let me down, that's simply you trusting your own judgment more than God's. You are living by faith. You're trusting yourself. You're saying you're the one who can make up your mind about what's right and wrong, what's going to bring you fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment, and yet you constantly fail in that, and yet you're like, next time, next time. And that's why Christian salvation is actually repenting of self-salvation. Abandoning all those efforts. So, in studying this passage, I came across some comments about three general categories of people in regards to contentment in life. And this will, this will, this will close us up this morning. The first category, okay, are people who believe the things they want must be able to give them contentment. Because after all, that's why we want them. Right? I mean, I want that. I believe. Faith, right? That's going to give me contentment. So therefore, the things I want must be able to give me contentment because that's why I want them. That's why I'm pursuing them. And I think if you've been a Christian for a while or if you've lived long enough as a Christian, you realize the, the foolishness of that. You believe that if you buy this, if you achieve this, if you go there, if you find that one person, that relationship, that romance, that then you'll be content, then you'll be satiated and fulfilled. The problem is that rarely does a person actually achieve accomplishing that, so we keep pursuing it. But if you are, quote-unquote, and, and I say quote-unquote, lucky enough to actually achieve that in life, then you realize that, oh, it didn't bring me what I thought it would. Now, um, I've, I've read about people that have done that. There's a quote by Jim Carrey who says, I want everybody to get to fame and, and, and wealth so they can realize that it's not what's going to bring you happiness. There was an article that I read that somebody else noted that I read. Okay, you get that idea? So I'm not that smart. Somebody else was smart who wrote about it and I wrote about, read about them. Okay? about how these people achieved fame and success and notoriety, celebrity status, 
and how overnight they turn into monsters. He said, man, I had a friendship with them, and overnight they suddenly got what they wanted most, this fame, this wealth, this celebrity, influencer kind of status, and they turn into monsters. And part of it's because what happens is when you get what you wanted most and you realize that it crumbles around you and it turns to dust in your mouth and it doesn't satiate, doesn't fulfill, doesn't satisfy, now you've got nothing to live for. And this is why the, the, the article wrote about how these people turned the very next night. They were trying to find barbiturates to dull the pain and dull the emptiness. The second category of people are those who choose not to pursue really anything. They've gone through life, few failed relationships, few bad news, few failed dreams or goals, and man, you start to learn. I'm not going to live for that anymore. So those disappointments, you start to avoid them. Those relationships, you put breaks and barriers on them. Now that strategy might help you survive the disappointments in life, but it, in some measure, not entirely, and it may be a strategy to get by, but it's not, it's not a strategy to thrive. It's almost impossible not to become at least partly cynical and hardened toward others and toward life if you live as that category. I'm not going to pursue anything. I'm going to put breaks and just going to hold it back. The Greeks would have called that, in some sense, stoicism. The third category of people are people described in Philippians 4, modeled by Paul, perfectly modeled by Jesus. And I'm going to mention Jesus because we have the account of Jesus in Gethsemane who is praying to the Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass. Let this wrath and this suffering pass. And this wasn't just play acting. Jesus was not play acting here. He was tortured in his soul so that his physical being was expressing that, sweating great drops of blood. And yet, we have it recorded for us in Hebrews that Jesus went forward into that. Why? For the joy that was set before him. So how do you contrast, right? In the garden, weeping drops of blood through the agony of his soul, yet we're told that he did it for the joy that was set before him. Both were happening. Jesus models this perfectly. Contentment. These people believe that the best things in this life, right? Love and relationships and success and achievement physical pleasure, emotional delight in people, possessions or places, wealth, prosperity, that's just icing on the cake. It's the appetizer for the main meal. Right? Now imagine if you just only ate frosting. Right? I mean, you may be... I'm one of the people that kind of scrapes off some of the frosting because it's like too much, right? Right? I mean, we'd be sickened. It's, it's not sustaining, thriving life. And this is why Jesus could say, this is eternal life. Which, by the way, that's what we all want. We all want eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you and the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's where the joy is found most. So the challenge is, which category of people do you find yourself in? And I know those are just general categories that are kind of derived from considering and thinking about people and life and philosophy and truth. But I think it summarizes it pretty well. Which category are you in? And if not, what's stopping you? What changes is God calling you to make this week? Right? Now, now say, well, I want to learn contentment this week. That's, that's what I'm going to do. 
Let's, let's focus on entrusting Christ in his process. What is one change that God is convicting your heart about that you can make this week in your pursuit of Christian contentment, true contentment, that Paul writes about here? Now, friends, this isn't going to come easy. There are a lot of threats to contentment that we face. Okay, so let's just really, really be practical. I'm not saying this is what you should do, all right? I'm just pointing out, just as, as we conclude, music team, you can come on up. Um, there are threats to contentment uh, we find in this modern age that to follow us around in our pockets. Like social media, social media is typically consumption of social media. And again, I'm not saying you just, you know, burn your phone when you go home, but I'm just pointing out that there's some low-hanging fruit here for us. Social media usually does not promote contentment. It's usually the opposite. You probably discovered things you never knew you needed until you got on social media and saw the ad and were like, oh, that's so cool, I'm going to buy that, right? And maybe it was great, right? I have a little bonfire stove that I found, how? On a social media. I love the thing, it's great, right? It's wonderful. We've had lots of good memories as a family out there with, those, with, those fire, with that fire pit. So it's not, it's not like it's just you're buying little, little parts of the devil. I'm not saying that. But friends, we need to recognize that there are some things we're doing that are sabotaging Christian contentment. Whether it's social media, whether it's TV and movies as they portray life that's godless, that seems, hey, it's looking pretty good. Or whether it's advertisements on nearly every platform conceivable. TV, radio, on a highway. You can't even drive down the road without some advertisement getting thrown at you. All, in, all aimed at inducing the issue of content, or, or, that you can find contentment through this. Now, having said that, let's us understand this, that the main issue with not having contentment is not the fault of social media. It's an issue of our hearts. And so if I can encourage us with one phrase, with one, just would we admit that we are built with this insatiable desire? And you might think, oh, that's awful. No, it's not. Because we have a God who is eternal and omni in every way possible. Omni meaning endless. And so, as C.S. Lewis put it like this, if you feel hungry in your stomach, you look around and yeah, you find food. Or he said this, you know, a little baby duckling wants to swim and lo and behold, it finds water. And so C.S. Lewis logically said, well, then it means then if there are desires in you that nothing will satisfy, then it must mean that you are built for something else. And we have them. It's Christ. It's knowing God through Christ. That's the something else we've been made for. So friends, this week, I'd love for us just to give our attention, our time, our focus in some measure in greater, great, some, some greater way as, as a church family to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus in this way. Pursue Christian contentment. Pursue Christ. Confess the need in your own heart. The thing you think is going to give you contentment, just confess that to the Lord. God, right now, I think that's going to give it to me, and I, it won't. But You will. Help me believe that and trust you in that. And friend, if this whole idea about Jesus seems foreign and strange, we want to invite you to keep coming back. Talk with us. We'd love to answer your questions about how you can know Christ as Savior and enjoy this contentment that he writes about in Philippians 4. Let's pray.